welcome to the MediaPod. Thank you for tuning in. This is Caroline, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief at MediaFile, and today our podcast co-hosts will be Shana and Natalie. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Shana Green. I'm the International Editor for MediaFile. I'm a junior studying journalism and mass communications, and I've been with MediaFile ever since I was a writer my sophomore year, so I'm very excited to be here. Um, hi, my name is Natalie uh, Jimenez. I am a sophomore here at TW. I'm majoring in journalism and mass communication, and I've been with Mediafile since like late last year, and I work in the international section, so Shaina's my editor. Great. So first today, Shaina is going to be introducing her topic that she's bringing to the table. Um, it's a topic near and dear to our hearts at Mediafile, as the Woman in Media section has been uh, one of our centerpieces for original reporting and interviews. So take us away. Right, so the Women in Media series is really fun and really important part of Mediafile. We're basically highlighting um, the different women in journalism, reporting, filmmaking, any form of um, expression uh, that highlights different things going on in the world. Uh, recently, we had two very exciting women in media to add to our series, one of which is Maha Asabalani, and she is from Yemen and Syria. And our other international editor, Cece Castronovo, was able to um, actually interview her while in Paris while she's studying abroad. So this was a great uh, setting and opportunity to get to know Maha. Uh, we're also excited about um, Annie Laurie, our other woman in media. And uh, Jenna Presta talks about how she, uh, she being Annie, um, loves to break up, as she says, the boys club. Uh, in recent years, more and more women have been joining the journalism uh, force, specifically in school media public affairs. Most of my classes are majority women, so that's very exciting. But there is this idea that different subjects are for men and different subjects are for women. Uh, women are more likely to cover reproductive health or education or things of that nature, but uh, women have just as much of a voice as men when it comes to economics, sports, politics, military, you name it, there's no reason not to have a woman in it. So we're very excited about these two new perspectives. Yeah, exactly. Um, I loved meet, uh, reading the articles, especially the one with Maha, just because I had the chance to meet her um, when I was abroad in Paris. And essentially, um, her work as a journalist is just so different from how we conceptualize journalism, because the way that she got into journalism was essentially being a revolutionary um, and, a, and somebody who is absolutely on the other side of the government um, in Syria. And that's something we don't normally think about in America, I guess, until recently as necessarily being uh, demonized by the regime, but uh, to the degree that her work was being demonized is something we can't even imagine here. Um, and her her office where she worked with her coworkers, um, which was at a very small, I, w I don't even want to call it an outlet, they were almost just a team of um, reporters who came together to try and bring some justice in Syria and uh, their office was raided and she was the only one who is not now uh, imprisoned in Syria. So she has um, made sort of an extremely daring choice in her life to be a journalist. Um, and remembering that perspective, especially for American journalists, is just so essential. 
I've come to realize, like, in a lot of our classes at SMPA, like, the whole idea of journalism being, like, you know, a means to, to, to keep power into account and, you know, to, to defy dominating narratives, it kind of becomes repetitive, where after a while you're like, oh, my God, you know, I've written this 50 times, it loses its meaning. But then you look at these, at these women, and they sacrifice their entire life for reporting, and you realize this is the power of journalism. If this woman is willing to give up everything just to give information to the people who don't have it, then, I mean, it's a tool that's incomparable to a lot of other things. Like, even though, yes, journalism is used for, you know, shady, you know, purposes, right? It can be used as propaganda, but it can also be used against that. If, you know, a whole population can be mobilized, then she's taking that opportunity. She's giving up everything she has in order to serve that purpose. That, to me, is amazing. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that really struck me about Maha is that her family loved her so much that her father said to her, it's us or journalism. Not because he was against her political beliefs, not because he was against the fact that she was a woman entering this uh, this type of work, just the fact that he knew that people were going to come and, and try to hurt her and, and their family. And so in order to protect his daughter, he told her, like, you either become a journalist or you never, you know, you never come home again. Um, I believe they've reconciled since, but she's now, she hasn't been to Syria or Yemen in a number of years. Mm -hmm. And she describes in the article how beautiful it is, the fact that that's her home, the fact that the only thing that people nowadays hear about these areas is that they're war-torn and there's humanitarian crises, which are important things to highlight, but there was a time before all this destruction and she really misses the like beauty of her home because whether or not you know this the same street signs are there the same hospitals are there mm -hmm. that's where that's where she fell in love with her country um and a lot of people don't see that side of things so it's a very interesting perspective right and i would also say like um i, I really i wouldn't say like i i completely identify obviously because we have completely different situations but just the fact that i do come from a country that is you know under attack both from within and and, and outside as well it, it's very heartbreaking to see it auto-destruct mm -hmm. um, it's something that you almost romanticize like you know the buildings the architecture the history and whatnot yet the people with all this history and culture have absolutely no voice even though they have so much to say so at least for me i use journalism as a means to reconnect to a country that i'm not able to go to and as you know when i write my articles about you know the countries that i come from it's almost beautifying you know kind of like giving the beauty to 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 like forgotten voices and i think that's maybe why she's so passionate right because the journalism is not about her it's about her experience it's about her country it's about giving back to them how do you give back if you can't be there you offer them a voice it's also interesting because one of the critiques that um, Maha shared with Sisi was that, um, you know, these parts of the world, Yemen and Syria, they're either only seen as like these war-torn places or not talked about at all. Um, like, of course, Syria has, uh, the, the conflict there has escalated quite a bit since uh, 2013, but with Yemen, there's such a humanitarian crisis going on with famine and the fact that um, relief forces are not allowed to cross the border. There are so many uh, complexities to this issue that don't get explored, and that also is a disservice, uh, as Maha uh, explained. So it's really important to keep the, in terms of balanced journalism, to talk about what once was and what is going on now, even if it's 
not even halfway around the world, even if it's so far away, yeah. um, because these are people's lives. And uh, unfortunately, when it comes to international news, American consumers are pretty terrible at keeping up. And when people don't read or, or listen, then they don't care, and then it's hard to make an impact. Yeah, and I think it's definitely comparable to talk a little bit about economic journalism here and just touch on Annie Lowry's interview because economic journalism sort of has the same effect on people. Um, we know that from basic surveys that not all Americans are completely economically literate. Um, so a lot of economic journalism is very niche. Um, it's for specific communities. So I think that's why Annie Lowry's uh, perspective is so interesting because she came in as sort of a young person, a woman, um, an outsider, and has worked her way up to be an extremely reputable and influential economics reporter and one uh, anecdote that I liked from her interview she mentioned that somebody um, a man who she was interviewing for a story made sure to explain to her what a yield curve was <laughs> um, which is just totally offensive to anybody who's a New York Times economics reporter the, the thought that they would hire someone who doesn't know what a yield curve is is absolutely crazy so that just shows some of the perspective that people uh, bring within the economic sphere, especially when women are involved. Um, it's, it, I believe it was the lowest proportion of women are in mm -hmm. economic journalism. About 40%? 40%, um, mm -hmm. right. Um, so hearing from her perspective about how she moves in the economic sphere was very interesting. Like one thing I would say uh, is that it could, like the economics like beat of uh, a newspaper, whatever, is very is very interesting because um, like when you think about it, it's actually very classist and it's very um, sexist as well because um, you really see the divisions, right? So when I read an article about economics, it seems like they're talking to a specific audience. They're not talking to me because they use jargon. And the whole point of journalism is to talk to as many people as you can. So I'm just thinking like, is the problem with the journal itself, right? Wanting to talk to a specific group of people because it thinks that they're the only ones who are interested? Or is it us who don't pay attention to the articles talking about economics? So they say, listen, we have to make a return. We know that not everyone's gonna listen. Let's target a specific group. Like, what do you guys think? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, if you go to like the housing bubble of 2006, it, like the elite people in the banking world and in the finances world, saw the signs and knew this was going to crash, the housing market was going to crash, but they weren't sure how and when. And um, I had to watch the movie The Big Short like five times just to even <laughs> like, just to even fully grasp what happened within our lifetimes, like mm -hmm. truly maybe a decade ago, you know, right. which is also crazy that it was already a decade ago. But these these issues have ramifications that are still affecting us today. And one wonders, if there had been more on-point economics reporters really digging into this, would there have been enough time to alert the masses in a translatable way? And I think that brings up the great point that when you have a more diverse newsroom, whether it be mm -hmm. gender or class, religion, um, ethnicity, race, when you have more diversity in a newsroom, then you have more perspectives in a newsroom, and that way you can translate all of this complex jargon because these thing, these issues are pretty complex and even hard for you know 
anyone to comprehend. Once you have more of those perspectives, then you're able to translate more of the necessary information to the masses as the public service that journalism should be. For sure, and I think that's something she kind of touches on in her interview when she's talking about how people are so willing to open up to her about their economic experiences, and that's more important than ever right now when the majority of people in America are facing really testing economic circumstances. We need people who have the ability to get people to open up, have the ability to get personal stories out of people, real information, and not just reporting on the stock market. Um, like you were saying, the economic concerns that are typically affecting the upper class that mostly you know, is being monitored by dudes. There, there, there's a really big draw for information. Dudes and suits. Yeah, dudes and suits. We need economic journalism that's not for dudes and suits. Moral of the story. Moral of the story. No, yeah, because I mean, economics affects everyone. This is not just like a, a class issue. That's yeah, why. no one's above it. Right, yeah. isn't? No one's above it. And when a lot of these, you know, whether it be politicians or even the president talks about tax breaks or whatever, tax cuts, I mean, they explain it in a way that's very simple. You know, you have less taxes, it's going to benefit you, whatever. A lot of times when I read these articles, it doesn't really benefit the people at the bottom. It benefits the people at the top. And they expect there to be, like, a trickle down mm -hmm. and, like, to help the lower class. It ultimately doesn't. Right. This is and not the 80s. It's not the 80s. It didn't work then. It's right. not going to work now. But people aren't aware of how these you know, these big moves affect them because right. no one talks about it and they think no one's going to listen when they do. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good segue or as good as it's going to get into your topic, which is yes. uh, also economic related, but it also crosses over into our industry section. So Natalie had an excellent idea to talk about something that's been going on for a while, but continually gets brought up a few times a year in a major news outlet, which is um, native advertising. It's something, it's a term I've never heard before, but I knew me what neither. it was when I yeah. saw it, and it makes me angry. It's a cool term. Yeah, yeah it's, it's when instead of a traditional ad buy where you pay for a little space on a web page or an app or whatever to advertise um, your service, product, etc., you have it embedded into a story or into some content that looks like it's native or it's supposed to be there, and it doesn't immediately alert you to the fact that it's an ad, which is really confusing, and I find it um, uncomfortable as a consumer, so if you want to... Right, no, exactly. I love your point about confusing, because I think a few years ago, this is a long time, 2014, the CEO of Times was had an interview with CNBC, and he was talking about native advertising, and they're asking, do you think this is problematic? I mean, you're disguising ads in the format of articles. You're building divisions specifically for business called like brand builders or something mm -hmm. for companies and you're selling your services, right? Like the separation of church and state, right? is kind of at peril and he's like, I don't see a problem with it. Like as long as there's ad on the top, there should be no issue. The problem is it's made to be disguised as an article. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's not a giant ad sign there. Right, you and you're, it's so easy for your brain to just gloss over the little tiny word that says ad. People make fun of me and say that I'm like an old person because I have the text size like bumped up to the max on my phone <laughs> because I can't read. I have astigmatism. So it's like <laughs> I can see when it says ad, but it's like if you have your phone on normal text size, which to me is like ant size, I, I would never notice that. So... And why are you putting it in the fine print? Is right. my question. Like I can't, I can't help but use a, a semi-unorthodox example. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Parks and Rec, <laughs> <laughs> there was there was an episode in one of the later seasons 
where this big tech company uh, basically bought out all the Wi-Fi in in, uh, in, in Pawnee. In Pawnee, thank you. <laughs> and um, yes, the the fictional place of Pawnee, Indiana. And um, basically, they were data mining and using all of this, all the, going through all the texts and emails and all of these private things to like create advertisements and send wow. people what they wanted. And uh, the the heroes of the story, uh, Leslie Nope, they were looking for um, like a legal way to say, hey, this isn't cool. And there were so many subsections in tiny red font on like a 28th page saying like, by the way, we have the right to data mine because we provide all the Wi-Fi in town. Mm -hmm. And even though it's technically sound, why are you putting it in such a like obscure, shady place? And that's that's what this is. It's right. telling people that, you know, this is decent news. This is an article that was written by a real person. And uh, you should really take this to heart. But that's and that's increasing the uh, the allegations of fake news in right. modern right. And times distrust in the and media distrust. Generally. Yeah, yeah, it's a serious problem. And actually, I, I think it's so funny that you brought this up, Natalie, because mm -hmm. I experienced this a week ago oh, and wow. it made me so mad. I, I found the article because I remembered reading it and I was so disturbed. So Scientific American is um, a newsy magazine that does reporting on scientific topics, especially like contemporary news stuff. I was trying to find out information about the dangers of having highly chlorinated water because my the water in my house is extremely chlorinated and I've been buying all these filters uh, because I think it's helping but I wanted to know if I was just wasting my money at Home Depot. <laughs> so, so anyways I'm like you know being a good consumer and trying to find some evidence. So I find the Scientific American article and um, somebody had the same question as me so they're answering it and they go to um, a spokesperson from a water filter company and I was like oh my god are you kidding me oh so I keep god. reading the article and they go like a little like some vague stuff about research and then this long quote from the filter lady and then the article concludes by saying you can uh, you can get rid of the chlorine if you're if you're now afraid of it by buying a filter from so-and-so company and I was like no way like oh I can't believe God. I just read that in Scientific American like I totally just wasted 20 minutes reading what amounted to an ad right. so sometimes it's transparent sometimes it's not it might have just been transparent to me because I'm a journalist, so I know that you're not supposed to do that um, <laughs> by our standard journalistic ethics code, but apparently things are changing and that's okay now. Right, and like if you ask, uh, again with the Times, I think one of the, either the, the, the chief business advisor, I don't want to say anything wrong, but someone at the Times was like, you know, this is not something to be worried about. We're just selling our digital storytelling tools with these companies. And it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting when you're saying the fine print or whatever, if you express it in the right way, you're selling your skills and your journalists in order to complement their their interests, right? So it's like sure. beautified. Mm -hmm. And so no one is really concerned about it. And let's be honest, is it really gonna go away? Because you have to look at why it's happening in the first place. Exactly, well I was thinking about this because Something that makes advertising completely different now that pretty much everything is online when you're thinking about news content, it's because we have means to track and get the metrics for every piece of content that we put on the internet. They're tracking their ads to see how many people look at them, how many people click on them, how many times they're viewed every single day. Um, 
And the reason for that is so that they can convince their advertisers that if you do this kind of ad, you'll get more viewers, or this kind of ad, you'll get more clicks. And what they're, they must have found is that when you do native advertising, people are less likely to say, that's an ad, get it out of my face, because they don't recognize it as an ad, and therefore they're getting more views, they're getting more clicks for their advertisers. Um, and I, could, I foresee things getting even worse because, you know, it's sort of like, a race to the top about who can who can get the most user engagement with their ads and people aren't afraid evidently to do some kind of sh shady stuff and sort of flaunt the rules to get there yeah and the uh oh sorry no no, no go ahead um it's really upsetting when like journalism like the force is used for the dark side because yeah. uh <laughs> it's really not cool to exploit the um unattainable like elitist knowledge of the average day consumer for profit um or to exclude people uh going back to how like you know economic journalism has so much jargon and is not easily accessible or consumable by the average reader it's the same thing with media literacy journalists and reporters and people in that kind of uh, political or uh, very niche world, they're going to have more of a knowledge of these things than the average consumer because it's their job. It's their nine to five. Sometimes they're 24 seven. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to expect of anybody to be at the level as professionals because it's almost like you're just talking, like journalists are just talking to journalists mm -hmm. or ads are just speaking to ads. And uh, that type of exploitation is really anti-journalistic because the whole point of journalism is to be a public service and to inform people so that they can make decisions for themselves. Right. And, and when that, again, is exploited and used for uh, darker means, you have to wonder what is, what is the point anyway. Right. Wow. And that's what I was going to say as well. Not to be like, cynical. No, that's completely <laughs> yeah, it's, true. It's because, completely valid. So I've heard some people say, well, the free press only works if people are willing to pay for it. And it's a very cynical view. Mm -hmm. But essentially, no one wants to pay for it. So right. what happens? You put ban ads, like banner ads. According to a study, we intentionally click on it like two-thirds of 1% of the time. Yeah. You know, like, and when you click on it, we probably, you know, it was a mistake. Like, obviously, right. we didn't want to click on that ban ad. So what happens? What's the next big thing? Native advertising. So it's so lucrative. I mean, I was looking at some figures, and it's in the billions. Like, oh, the, just, yeah, yeah, it's a billion-dollar industry. It was like yeah. seventeen billion. Yeah, I want to say. something like that. Exactly. I mean, that's a pretty penny. Yeah. They're not. I mean, I'm just thinking, what are the solutions? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What are the alternatives? Because the news, you know, industry is going through some tough times. Right. Like newspapers are, are faltering. You know, there's just not enough readers and. People are not interested in non-digestible news stories that are quick right. and then and so, so how do we go about it? Yeah, it's almost like the advertisers are taking advantage of the hard times that the <laughs> news industry has found itself in. Um, so that's a, that's disappointing, but not surprising. Exactly. All right, so we can go ahead and move on to my section of the podcast. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this Elizabeth Warren mess that we saw in the media Mama about Mia. a week ago, a little <laughs> over a week ago. It, it was very disappointing to me because I, I like to believe that although, of course, all media is biased, um, the so-called left-wing media isn't just jumping to conclusions that, that look good for the, for the people who they like. And this was just such a lapse in that expectation 
within the first few hours after Elizabeth Warren released this press release, um, releasing the, re the results of her DNA test, which had a very, very, very small marginal hint of Native American ancestry that can be expected for any uh, European descended person in America. It's not more than you would expect. It's not less than you would expect. It's just normal. Like I am probably equally as Native American air quotes as Elizabeth Warren, um, <laughs> which first of all is disappointing because I wanted her to throw it in Trump's face and come out the victor on top because I like Elizabeth Warren, but I'm willing to, to recognize that this was sort of a misstep on her part um, because she didn't really prove anything, but the way that it was so well framed by her, um, her PR team or whoever she's working with in the beginning, all these news outlets said, we're gonna take them at their word. She is Native American. This is something we're gonna grab onto and run with it and do what I wanted to happen and throw it in Trump's face. Um, <laughs> so, so then a few hours later, uh, maybe a day later, pretty much everybody released an article um, sort of explaining the real meaning of her uh, DNA test and going beyond just what they got from the press release and saying this is just average, um, this doesn't mean that she has any claim to Native American heritage or a tribal heritage. Um, I saw plenty of articles that included quotes from uh, the tribal nation that she claimed to be affiliated with saying that frankly they were offended by her claim that she had any tribal heritage which I completely understand um, if I were to you know, take a DNA test and then say that I had some sort of claim to Native American ancestry, then it's just not right. So <laughs> it's just wrong. And I don't completely fault Elizabeth Warren because her, her family story, the whole reason this came up in the first place is because somebody, um, her grandma, I believe, had some sort of Native American link and that caused her to be discriminated against by the rest of the family who was just straight up European. Um, and that's a very real thing, and she's totally welcome to talk about that, but throwing this DNA test out there like it's supposed to give her a distinction from everybody else is sort of silly. So I'm glad that the media caught on to it. I'm disappointed that they didn't take the time to, to go over everything with a fine-tooth comb, cross-reference, before they put those articles out. Um, but at least it happened. So if you guys want to jump in. And well, I think... The whole idea of taking a DNA test to throw uh, some sort of weapon at Donald Trump's face is frankly irresponsible. Uh, Donald Trump is very good at spin and he is very good at saying like, see, they're conspiring against us. You know, mm -hmm. this is the liberal agenda. And <laughs> as much as I too am a Elizabeth Warren fan, um, the fact that she took the bait when he egged her on about a DNA test, the fact that she, uh, you know, fell into his trap is disappointing since she has been one of the um, main critics of his administration um, and, a, and a very assertive critic at that. And I think the weaponization and tokenism of marginalized groups is very irresponsible, and it's also not going to help with your base either. I know that there is this stereotype that the Democratic Party is more tolerant, more lenient, more accepting, but uh, people are prone to implicit bias, and implicit bi by implicit bias, I don't mean racism, I mean these tiny... Um, expectations that we grow up with that are 
um, that we internalize that we're not even aware of that bring out some sort of uh, bias or some sort of opinion that, again, is completely unintentional and can be overcome. This is one of the themes of SMPA's Race Perception News Reporting class, mm-hmm. which is taught by Jeffrey Blunt. Um, and he was at NBC for like 34 years. So he, he knows what he's talking about. Um, and I have the pleasure of taking his class. But I think that it really, there was nothing good to come out of the DNA test, whether or not it showed that she was more Native American than the average, mostly European-based person. Um, and the other thing is that just because your DNA has something in common with uh, a group that you were, you're surprised about, that you have that in common with, um, doesn't mean that you get to claim that culture as your own. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, my great-great-grandfather originated in Spain, but I don't go around calling myself a Latina or a Hispanic. I, I may, <laughs> I'm a very Caucasian Jewish woman, and I, I have no right to claim that I belong to the Hispanic community um, because that's not how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And when you grow up without you know, knowing these different cultures, then you, you grow up without their experiences, without their obstacles, without their triumphs. And again, you know, it reminds me of uh, how Hillary Clinton, despite her best intentions, tried so very hard to be liked by the African-American community. Mm-hmm. But her record and her establishment politics just spoke too much for itself. And, and it was very obvious that she was just trying to get the black vote without really engaging with different black communities and really like knowing their um, different experiences and perspectives. And it's, it's truly uh, a slap in the face for people who believe in these different politicians who are from marginalized groups and then their identities become political weapons. And it, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was going to say, because you bring up really interesting points, because nothing was going to result from this, right? Because even though the intentions were good, right, she, she, she's established this connection with Native American ancestry. As someone who is of Native American ancestry, my grandmother was from a tribe, I think that it's beautiful that she appreciates our culture, right? But when you use it as a means to refute someone else, whether it be Trump or another politician, you tokenize the group. You use it as a means to say, oh, I connect with you, or I'm different, or whatnot. Don't use it as a political tool, because you're going to ostracize the entire community. Like, we're not something that's going to differentiate you or give you political points. Like, this is a culture, and, and we're very close to, to our traditions. Second thing I would say is that the media is the media, and if there's a sensational story, they're going to latch onto it. They're going to be like, this is the DNA test, this is the results. She lies, she was right, whatnot. They're going to latch onto it because people want to hear about it. So that's when you fall into the trap of not going through it with fine-tooth comb and, and analyzing the, the results, not playing into the rhetoric that you know certain people want to play out. Exactly. And uh, we had an excellent Mediafile article about this by Kate Waters, who kind of summed up and more uh, what my thoughts and feelings were when Elizabeth Warren uh, came out with this because... <laughs> By God, I want her to run in 2020. <laughs> I want to vote for Elizabeth Warren, but I was and this so... this will not help. Yeah, I was so <laughs> disappointed by this when it came out, and I was just feeling crushed. Um, so Kate was able to sort of synthesize everything I was thinking about um, at the end of her article. She calls out Politico a little bit because they, they initially came out with an article that said, Elizabeth Warren hits back at Trump 
releases DNA tests strongly supporting Native American ancestry. And I think that's exactly like the kind of thing that you were just saying is blanketly wrong, Natalie, and I completely agree. Um, they just immediately made it the political statement. They immediately just took the strongly supporting language from her press release and slapped it in their headline um, without, you know, fact checking and making sure that that was actually how it sounds because essentially it's a very misleading phrase because they're making it sound like she has strong Native American ancestry, um, whereas there's strong evidence that she has some very small Native <laughs> American ancestry. And there, that's a really important distinction because most people we know uh, read the headline and then move on. So there are definitely people out there who, after reading that headline, had a completely different picture of what actually happened. So uh, the next day they they published sort of a follow-up article called Warren Stumbles with Native American Rollout, colon. The likely 2020 candidate is getting flack from the left and right after trying to defuse a Trump-driven controversy. So they did a total 180, and now they're, now they're on our team. Um, so, yeah. I, my, all I have to <laughs> say, to is, say. This, is the second headline should have been the first headline. That's definitely accurate, and in terms of, like journalism best practice uh this story about warren being potentially some part native american uh got more traction with the news cycle than uh native americans who are being disenfranchised with voter with voting um by the supreme court because on reservations there aren't uh typical streets and mailboxes like there's no usps exactly yeah and because of this like hundreds and hundreds of um, Native Americans are going to be without voting rights. And this is happening now. And yet this issue was not as circulated as the Elizabeth Warren controversy. No, definitely not. I I actually had to explain the P.O. Box uh, controversy to my mom. So essentially the Supreme Court Court case said that you can't use uh, a P.O. Box as an election-related mailing address, but the only option for uh, thousands of people living on reservations is to use a P.O. Box, and that's how they send and receive mail. So it's a huge problem for people who now have no address that they can use to vote or vote by mail. Um, and it's essentially just disenfranchisement, but she didn't know anything about it. <laughs> the only reason I knew about it was because I saw a couple stories about it. I saw it on Twitter actually for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I completely agree that there needs to be a balance between the reporting on these two issues. If you're going to spend so long talking about the ethics of Elizabeth Warren and her relationship to the Native American community, at least have the devote the time to cover what Native American people are talking about and are worried about in their communities, especially in regards to elections and politics. And I would argue that the dis- the mass disenfranchisement of an entire um, ethnic group is just as sensational as Elizabeth Warren going to Ancestry.com. Yeah, <laughs> I would, absolutely. And I think part of um, how the president has changed the way that journalism, the the whole process of journalism uh, is conducted, is that what's news now is vaguely synonymous with the political gossip of the week. Um, And we're used to seeing gossip in reality television or on like the Daily Mail uh, section of Snapchat or, (laughs) you know, like we're used to um, seeing gossip in these like 
minor, you know, like unharmful ways. Mm -hmm. But now because polarization is so rampant, um, there is this like this uh, this moment of gossip and this moment of reality TV within our executive branch within our legislative branch and after all the Kavanaugh hearings you know in our judicial and it's hard I think for journalists to discern what is factually relevant and what is um, uh, socially relevant in the context of politics that's a great point yeah yeah Great wrap-up, guys. Yeah, we should, yeah, end it on that. <laughs> yep, good note. All right, well, thank you again, everybody who tuned in and listened to the whole podcast. You're a champ. Come back. <laughs> Come back in two weeks. We'll have another one ready for you. Um, thank goodness we are getting the media pod back off the ground because it is so fun to record, um, and we love just being able to bring in a whole mix of people. We had completely different co-hosts uh, last podcast and next week we'll maybe have some returners, maybe have some more new folks. Um, we're going to try and get some folks to call in from outside DC. That's my next goal. We'll see how recording on speakerphone works out. Um, <laughs> we're not high tech enough to do it another way. So thank again, thank you for tuning in and have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Right, bye.